Had anyone even thought to save that door with its wonderful stained-glass panels? Most of the outside stairways, she noticed with a shiver, had been removed or modified to serve the transformation of an apartment house into, what was the official term? A single-family dwelling. We had been a family, she thought, even in our separate dwellings. From this angle, of course, she couldn't see the little house on the roof, the funky matchbox studio Mrs. Madrigal's tenants had referred to as the Pent Shack. Her guess was it no longer existed, given the extensive nature of this remodeling. It had probably been replaced by a deck, or another floor entirely, and she wasn't sure how to feel about that. Her memories of the place held both dread and delight. Two blocks away, while looking for lunch, she found the corner mom and pop still intact, still called the Searchlight Market. Next door, her old laundromat had been stylishly renovated and a little too cutely renamed The Missing Sock. It pleased her to find the original thirties lettering still silvering the plate glass at Wu's Cleaners, though the place was obviously empty. The windows were blocked by pale blue wrapping paper, the very paper her laundry had once been wrapped in. Across the street, a pristine gallery of tiny objets had sprouted next to what had once been Marcel and Henri, the butcher shop where she had sometimes splurged on pâté, just to keep from feeling like a secretary. And there was Swenson's, the ice cream shop at Hyde and Union that had been her consolation on more than one Saturday night when she had stayed in with Mary Tyler Moore. This was the original Swenson's the one Mr. Swenson himself had opened in the late forties, and he had still been running it when she was here. She was about to stop in for a cone just for old time's sake when she spotted the fire trucks parked on Union. Rounding the corner, she found dozens of onlookers assembled beneath a big sooty hole on the second floor of a house. The crisis seemed to have passed. The air was pungent with the smell of wet embers, and the firemen, though obviously weary, were business as usual as they tugged at a serpentine tangle of hoses. One of the younger ones, a frisky Prince Harry redhead, seemed aware of his lingering audience and played to the balcony with every manly move. We do love our firefighters, she thought, though she had long ago forfeited the right to the municipal we. She was no more a San Franciscan now than the doughy woman in a support-our-troops sweatshirt climbing off the cable car at the intersection. She herself hadn't used a cable car for years, yet every handrail and plank was as vividly familiar as her first bicycle. This one had a light blue panel along the side, marking it as a bicentennial model. They were built the year she arrived in the city. She waited for the cable car to pass, considering something that eventually sent her into Swenson's to address the middle-aged white man behind the counter. "'I used to order something here,' she said, as winsomely as possible. "'But I can't remember the name of it. It was thirty years ago, so you may not—' "'Swiss orange chip.' "'Excuse me?' "'Chocolate with orange bits, right?' "'Yes. That's Swiss orange chip.' She gaped at him. How on earth did you do that? He shrugged. It's the flavor people can never remember the name of. Oh, right. She gave him a curdled smile, feeling irredeemably average. It's really good at any rate. He made her a sugar cone with a single scoop. Without tasting it, she carried it half a block to Russell Street, 
the little alley off Hyde where Jack Kerouac had been holed up for six months in the early fifties, working on a draft of On the Road. Her first husband, Brian, had brought her here when they started dating since the place held great significance for him. Standing before the A-frame cottage like a pilgrim at Lourdes, he had told her only that Neil Cassidy had lived there, and she, God help her Cleveland soul, had asked if that was one of David Cassidy's brothers. He was gentle about it at the time. He wanted to get laid, after all, but he wouldn't let her forget it for years. Had she paid more attention to that moment and what it said about both of them, she might have saved them from a marriage that was pretty much doomed from the start. Now, according to the daughter they had adopted, Brian was out living his own version of On the Road, driving his beloved Winnebago from one national park to another, apparently more at ease with life than he had ever been. He was seven years older than she, which made him 64.